So today we have a very special guest with us on a podcast, Benjamin Ueda, architect turned uh, serial entrepreneur. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us, Ben. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Uh, a little bit of influencing and media creation in between those two things, but uh, yeah, it's been it's been fun watching you dabble in content creation and media. My introduction to you was when a bunch of people sent me the shipping containers. Shipping containers are scam uh, video. And they're like, she's calling your container house a scam. And I'm like, all right. One, I appreciate people looking out for me. So let's watch the video. I watched the video and, you know, you did have a lot of like uh, excerpts from our video series on the Modern Home Project where we built the shipping container house from scratch. But I was like, I agree with everything that she's saying. Just because I'm involved in making shipping containers houses doesn't mean I don't, that I have to like white knight champion the entire industry uh, because there are a lot of shipping container scams and you did a great job of kind of separating out good information from some very fraudulent uh, people that are trying to sell, you know, or make misleading promises about how affordably they can build shipping container houses. That's very kind. Thank you, Ben. And I think that's what's great about your series. It's not like what you see on other social media platforms. It's not like a before and after. They show this rusty shipping container and then a a shiny product when it's saying this was done in a week and it's just the ideal um the ideal conversion you can think of it's the perfect home for you you showed the reality of it you didn't say that this was the like the silver bullet to housing problems you didn't say it was the worst thing ever you just you mapped out everything very realistically and you said come to your own conclusion after you yes. watched the series and that was it's most things are just a thing they're not a solution. They're not a quick and easy miracle cure. They're just a thing. And we see this all the time in the construction industry. You know, uh, when I first got started with my architecture firm, there was a lot of companies pitching SIPs or structural insulated panels. And they're like, you can build faster, less thermal conductivity. All those things are true. You can use SIPs to build faster and they do have less thermal uh, conduction between the inside layer and the outside layer, and they are a structurally sound system. They are a fine thing, but the other way is also fine, and they never really took on relative to their, you know, quote unquote, promise to revolutionize the construction industry, uh, simply because there was supply chain issues, there wasn't enough uh, scaled manufacturing of them, there was concerns about long-term durability. Some of those were founded, some of those were unfounded, but more importantly, there wasn't a clear incentive why a decision maker on the developer side or on the builder side should switch. Switching takes a lot of time and energy to research and contractors that were good enough and thoughtful enough to, to build a good business already built a business that works and they need a really good, strong value proposition to switch something over and change their whole crews. Then along came like ICS, which I see you have uh, sitting on your yeah. desk. Same thing, revolutionizing building industry. All you need is these styrofoam blocks. House goes together like Legos in one day. Well, no, still got to do the rebar and set all the things. And we're going to revolutionize the construction industry. Well, not so much. And then straw bale construction and hempcrete and now 3D printing. 3D printing. And, yeah. 
and modular uh, steel shipping containers. So all of these things are good. It's none of them are, you know, completely fraudulent, but it's really challenging to adopt any technology and there is no real silver bullet. Uh, there are just things that have different advantages in different situations. And that's how I sort of approached the shipping container house was you can do this, whether it's good or bad really depends on your specific situation. I think a shipping container house is great if you're completely DIYing it, because if you're doing conventional framing, which I think is more cost effective and has more flexibility, a one person crew sometimes struggles setting and leveling a really heavy or large like roof framing beam. Whereas with a container, you, starting with the outside shell, you have reference points to build inside. So for a one person gig, kind of great, but it loses some of those special efficiencies of that specific labor context uh, when you try to scale it or apply it to a typical construction crew. What was your motivation behind the shipping container home? Was it your interest in it and you trying to figure out is this really viable as a long-term solution well i mean the motivation for anything business-wise is it's always money um so i you know i saw opportunity in it now the curiosity was when i was teaching architecture first at cornell then at northeastern university i saw that there was a lot of interest from students in shipping container houses saying like could we create this sort of aggregated housing situation to plug and play, Legos, stack the that's different what, housing, yeah. And the cust <laughs> yeah, customizable modules that are all stacked together to create these crazy, like kind of dystopian, but cool dystopian towers. And I always, they always said, oh, they're gonna be more efficient and cost-effective to build. And I'm like, well, how do you know that? And they're like, oh, I read an article. Then I look at the article, I'm like, eh, this isn't exactly really investigative journalism with a lot of like empirically derived data. This seems like one person's quote. So I had always been sort of the back of my mind, but I was looking for, I wanted to do a big docu-series on building a house from start to finish for a new YouTube channel. And Home Depot had expressed interest in sponsoring a, a really like detail oriented series on building a house from start to finish. So then I was thinking, okay, I have interest on the financial side. I have interest on my creative side to build a house from start to finish. How do I de-risk this on the audience side to make sure that there will be audience interest in this? So I was looking for something that would be uh, novel, meaning that there aren't a lot of other, there's a lot of video series on how to build a normal house from, from scratch. So I want to do something that was a little bit novel, but not so peculiar and odd, like hay bale or rammed earth, not quite that obscure. Um, so I was trying to find that sweet spot. So what I did was, is I looked at the search volume for search uh, for shipping container houses on Google Trends. I was like, okay, there's a good amount of people searching for shipping container houses every single month. So there's interest. That's the demand side of the content economy. Then I said, what's the supply of that content? And I did it, went into YouTube, no trends, no analytics, just typed in ship a container house start to finish. And I didn't really see, there's a lot of videos that had good amounts of views, but none of them really had great information about the whole thing. And that's what sort of uh, builds my confidence to take on a big media project. When I see that there's demand on the consumer side, but then not a really good supply that I'm trying to compete with. 
Now, so a, a case that would be the, uh, that I wouldn't do would be like river tables. You know, it's like wood and epoxy tables oh, that yes. are really popular. Live so that's something that tables. Is, that's something where there is high demand on the consumer side. People like watching epoxy live edge tables, but there's also a lot of supply. So that's something where I wouldn't invest a lot of time or resources into developing that type of content, not because the demand isn't there, but just because something's popular doesn't mean it's a good business opportunity. Restaurants are popular, but there's a lot of restaurants. So investing one isn't always a great business opportunity. So since you stepped away from the architecture field and started building your channel Home Main Modern, uh, you've, you've developed a very, very unique marketing uh, strategy. And you talked about this in your TED talk a couple of years ago, and I'm sure pe plenty of people have watched that video. Um, that was one of the turning points in my life to watching that TED talk of yours. You said, instead of once you come up with the product, rather than mass producing it and going through all the hurdles of mass production, you gave away the idea for free and kind of monetized the marketing side of it rather than the production side. And I feel like that's what you did with your shipping tornado. That was like the peak of your, of this idea that you have been building up over several years. Yeah, it's, I, I have a tendency to connect, to think about all aspects of life in a very similar way. Like I don't have a lot of separation between business life, what I do for fun, and uh, my social relationships. And I think it's because like conceptually, these aren't really different fields. They're, they're all interconnected. So for one, it's like, I know I work harder and am more detail oriented if I'm intellectually interested and curious about the work. I also know that I work harder and am more responsible if I really like the people that I'm working with. So whether it was architecture or social media, I always wanted to have the same clarity where I could explain the why and the what equally well in everything that I'm doing. Why I'm going on vacation here, why I'm investing time in investigating this topic, why I'm investing my money into this particular business outcome. I always want to be able to explain both the, the, the what and the why very succinctly and very clearly. I'm not trying to give away design as some sort of super humanitarian thing, but it doesn't mean I don't appreciate that and don't enjoy that. It doesn't add an ancillary benefit. What was interesting about that TED Talk is, and it, I am always so appreciative of the, the people that, you know, were moved by it and, and sort of reference it. So thank you. It also is sort of a double-edged sword because people love to kind of excerpt things and then be like, you say you're giving away design for free, but here you're promoting something that's for sale. If you really cared about giving away things for free, why is everything that you're doing free? Okay, I think you might kind of miss the point, but I'm not looking to try to create like a, a, it's funny, I got asked recently to create a nonprofit about sort of sharing design. It's not something I'm interested in doing because I want to be very clear that I'm not doing that for solely the altruistic nature of it. But it doesn't mean that the altruistic nature of the business model isn't important. I would rather have a business that's ethical than one that's completely mercenary and terrible. 
but it doesn't mean that that ethic is the driving force for every single thing that I do. Uh, I like to eat mostly healthy, but it doesn't mean I never have dessert. It means that I'm trying to keep like an 80-20 rule of sort of regimented and on focus with like macros and nutrition, but also 20% of my time where, hey, I'm out to dinner with friends, going to order cheesecake and a martini and the hell with everything else, right? So with the sort of giving away design for free is, yes, that feels good. And it's really cool to make that connection with an audience. And you see a design in their home that they made from your ideas that they never had to pay you a dollar for. That feels great, even if you don't make a lot of money from that project. So that is a motivation. But on the other side, it was whenever I've started product companies or been directly involved as an advisor of product companies, inventory management, uh, production efficiency, manufacturing insurance, dealing with supply chain stuff, that is all not fun at all. So yes, there is an altruistic motive, but also there was a, uh, another positive motive was like, I don't like dealing with all these kind of spreadsheets and very complicated strategic tasks. I just want to focus on the fun creative part. And so it was this nice kind of intersection between something that feels good and something that's eliminating a lot of things that are really annoying. Oh. <laughs> So the reason I mentioned your TED talk is because like in 2016, when I stepped away from the architecture profession, I was really frustrated with it. And um, pallet wood furniture was really trending at that time, like around 2015 and 2016. So my husband and I, we started breaking down pallets and making pallet wood signs and furniture. And very quickly, we realized it was not profitable at all. It was extremely labor intensive. Yeah, <laughs> it was we were in the wood shop till 12 in the night, just cl cleaning up pallets and was completely pointless. We, we weren't saving the environment or saving the pallets or preventing them from going to the landfill. Um, and then I came across your TED talk and I was, and that idea really hit me that rather than focus on the product, focus on an idea, build up an idea and maybe try to market that. That's why I, I mentioned your TED talk. Yeah, and like all businesses, the amount of capital that you have to have really impacts the type of strategies you take in building that business. If like, I wouldn't run my business if, if, if some of my friends came to me and go, hey, we wanna put a lot of money behind you to really change the, front, the, the entire landscape of the furniture industry. And let's say like we're willing to line up a couple hundred million dollars of capital and you're going to be the creative director and help really figure out how to revolutionize this industry. Well, with that much capital, yeah, we're going into manufacturing. We're not sharing design and media. What I think is really challenging is trying to take $100,000 and to create a physical uh, furniture business that's competing with IKEA, West Elm, and all these other ones. So it's not that the idea of selling physical furniture direct to consumer or through retail is good or bad. It's completely neutral, but different business models lend themselves to different contextual advantages. Media is a great thing with the sort of platforms that we have now with like YouTube, podcasting, Instagram for low capital, high labor, good creative uh, entrepreneurs to get started in. But if this was 30 years ago, it would have been a terrible business to get in to try to get started in independent video production. Yeah. The equipment was really expensive. The distribution platforms were limited. 
So that would have been the same idea. Again, it's neutral outside of context. In this particular context, it represented a better opportunity for me than trying to build a large scale uh, brick and mortar furniture business. Yeah. So back to the your shipping container home. I think you're you're building a shipping container hotel somewhere in California, right? You kind of is that you taking on the lessons learned from your shipping container home and applying it to a larger project? Yes and no, because a lot of the lessons are, 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 again, so specific, right? How I design and build a residence is different than uh, the developing, right? So the way I sort of look at it is scaling versus escalating. So one of the first things that I ever saw on the internet uh, that really made me think about its potential for an individual was this story of this guy that started with a paperclip and then he traded it, I think it was via eBay for like a cigarette lighter and then for like a stapler. And he basically worked his way up this with one trade of this item to something slightly more valuable, slightly more valuable. And he started with a paperclip and worked his way all the way up to a car and then a house. And what I like about that is if you were making a paperclip and then making a car, there's no direct line through those things for an individual. Even a paperclip takes a factory to make with lots of capital production and a car takes hundreds of millions of dollars to start a car company. So, but through using one of these internet and digital platforms, he was able to just be involved in these transactions and trade his way up and escalate. He didn't have any employees, didn't have anything else. He was just doing this all through the infrastructure provided by eBay and PayPal. Um, so that was sort of what I've been interested in how I approach sort of my YouTube channel is when I got out of my tech startup and architecture firm, it was because I really just don't want to manage a lot of people. I don't want to spend my time in meetings. And so with YouTube, I was thinking like, I think the first project I made was a vase and it's been slowly escalating ever since bigger and bigger and more complicated projects. The team stays really small, but the projects get bigger and bigger as I learn more things, get more resources. It's like a video game. You're still playing the same avatar, but you're different at level 100 than you are level one. You have more gear, you have more assets, you have more capabilities. So there is this, gra this gradual sort of approach over the first eight years of my YouTube channel where I went from a vase to you know furniture projects, to renovation projects, to bigger CNC projects, to uh, retail renovations to all the way up to building a shipping container house. So escalation, but I wasn't scaling. The team was still the size, same size. And I was still producing about the same number of videos every year. So I was thinking like a house is a couple hundred times bigger than a base. What's a couple hundred times bigger than a house. And the, the shipping container, video series did really well. It did like 25 million views across 10 episodes. And I was thinking like, and I got a lot of interest from investors of being like, oh, help us build a bunch of short-term rentals or let's build 10 of these a year for Airbnb. And I thought about it because the investment packages they were offering were, were great, but I didn't want to repeat myself with a whole bunch of container houses. One, I don't think container houses are that great. I think they're fine, just like everything else. They're fine if they're done well. They're bad if they're done poorly. 
So I was thinking what would be interesting though, and I also am not totally comfortable with the impact that short-term rentals are having on local housing markets. I think it can be really challenging. And from a zoning standpoint, we're turning residential areas into hotels, which is not always terrible, but there's some unintended consequences that weren't accounted for in those original zoning maps. So I reached back out to those investors and said, let's do a real hotel. And we acquired uh, about 200 acres of land right outside of the entrance to Joshua Tree National Park. And we are uh, just got entitlements a few months ago for a entitlements is like the early zoning stage of permitting uh, for a 65 uh, room shipping container hotel. So it's been kind of fun uh, to kind of, you know, go from base to house and then from house to something that will be about 65 to 100 times bigger than uh, a house, all supported and initiated through content creation and, you know, digital creativity. I'm not saying this to flatter you, but your brain and the way you think about stuff to like, not just not just one particular project, but the way you link stuff together and your long-term vision. You, I've told it's my husband this, but you are probably one of the smartest people <laughs> no, I've no, no. spoken to. But it, I'm flexible. I'm really flexible in how I'm thinking. But there's like, like I tried to play Wordle the other day because I saw everyone. I'm terrible at it. Um, I'm barely competent on like Microsoft Office. I'm terrible at spelling. I don't have great like uh, off paper calculation abilities with like math or anything else. The people say that I'm very creative and I, and I believe them. Um, and, I, and I think there's something there. But when I think about what that actually is, it's much more uh, EQ than IQ. Like, when else I've been thinking a lot about what creativity actually is because I don't feel more creative because I haven't lived in anyone else's shoes. So when I break it down to like, why do people uh, identify me as a creative person? And it's because they're seeing a lot of different output. So they're not really saying that like just out of a conversation with me, uh, but when they see all the reference points, you made this, you made this, and then you like and enthusiastically talk about that what is like the core sort of like fundamental personality trait that it's coming from? And I think it's uh, optimism. I think creativity is inherently tied to optimism. And I think those are two things that I'm really good at is I recently was doing experimentation with like uh, water balloons and epoxy. That right? was a fascinating video. Anyone who hasn't watched it should watch it. <laughs> That's not a genius idea. It's a very like five to seven year old you know, young person idea, the creativity to actually do it is much more related to, hey, this could make a huge mess, which it did. I had to redo my floors because the epoxy leaked out and then pulled the paint off the floors in the studio. We redo the floors all the time, so it's not a big deal. But so the reason why there is no intelligence to the idea, there was optimism that was pushed me to have a willingness to make a massive mess and to just do that. I didn't have an idea for the container house. I think the one I, that I built that I designed looks really great. And I like the little creative decisions I made within it, but it's not any more intelligent than a lot of the other shipping container houses are over there. But you have to be pretty optimistic to take on a project that big 
where there's no real standard blueprints or architectural details. You have to have an optimism to risk $20,000 in engineering fees versus $2,000 for a conventionally framed house that's way bigger. The engineering for the shipping container house was about $17,000 to get the stamp drawings from the engineer. Uh, and then we had to make some changes. There's some ad change orders. And I think it ended up around $22,000. For the new home that I'm designing, which is stick built, uh, I spent uh, $1,700 on engineering wow. for a 1,600 square foot conventionally framed house. So it's not that like intelligence is driving me to make a shipping container house. It's a optimism and a cheerfulness and a curiosity to say that, you know what? It's a good idea to spend 10 times the money on engineering rather than going the conventional way. So that creativity, I think, is much more, and, it's, and sometimes it, it leads me astray too. Creativity has led me into bad business decisions just as often as it has good ones. But when I think about what, when I take more risk, it's when I feel more optimistic. And when people identify me as a creative person, it's normally after I took a risk that wasn't a brilliant idea. It was just a idea that I was worth risking a mess and some financial losses for. So I appreciate the compliment, but I am careful with it because I used to like, uh, I was on uh, my friend, comedian Andrew Schultz's podcast and he always introduced me. Oh, my genius friend, Ben. I'm like, well, let's... <laughs> And then like the comments are just like, this guy's not a genius. And it's like, well, yeah, like <laughs> it's just sure. it's your thought process. It's just, it's fascinating. And I've I've learned a lot from our two conversations prior to this podcast. It's it's a very well thought out the way you think is really it's very inspirational. <laughs> I, I assume there's logic in a lot of the things we do. It's, and I think it's worth spending the time when you're kind of sitting in the or standing in the shower, kind of thinking about like if I was to connect a broad theory to all the weird things that I do, how do I connect them? But in real time, I, I'm not this like master planner or strategist. Like I kind of like pick a concept that I like, like sharing design is media, monetizing is marketing. That's really the extent of the strategy for, for homemade modern. There's like little games of like, okay, let me focus on YouTube versus blog versus Instagram. But there, there isn't masterminding. There's sort of uh, guiding principles or concepts, and then a lot of just sort of effort and testing. But uh, yeah, I should probably just take the conference. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the next stage in your career? You feel, do you feel like you've built up this your YouTube audience on two channels now, two separate channels, and now you're going to, you've started building these other companies called Hoke Furniture, Mm -hmm. Hook furniture. I'm sorry. Hook furniture with made out of recycled plastic. And you've also been uh, an advisor to Skip Renovation, which is a kitchen remodel um, AI platform. Yeah. yeah. Um, so once I got to like a, a million subscribers on YouTube, I started seeing sort of diminishing returns on that grind. And it was a, it was a real long grind of like you know four to five years and producing a video pretty much every week some weeks i miss and there wasn't as like hitting a hundred thousand subscribers was the most satisfying kind of social media milestone that i ever hit and i think it was about one or two years in and 
it was really exciting because it kind of was the point to where this was becoming a financially viable business where I didn't have to think about other freelancing design gigs or anything else. That was the biggest reward numerically, at least uh, in this kind of influencer journey. When I hit a million, I was like kind of like anticlimactic. I was like, cool, big number, like awesome, like super, super grateful, all those things. But it, it wasn't the same sort of enthusiasm the following week as it was with 100,000 subscribers. So it was when the point where I was kind of seeing the point of diminishing returns from sort of enjoyment versus time and struggle investment. But at the same time, I was thinking like, well, I, I like doing personal inventory whenever I'm at sort of a moment of like what to do next. It's like, what do I have access to? Who are my sort of connections? What physical resources do I have? That's actually how I started the first you know, YouTube channel was I was like, what do I have? I have this amount of space. I have these tools. I have this camera. Uh, I have this information uh, from my architectural education and sort of working on architecture projects. How do I apply this list of ingredients to make a meal? Um, and now, you know, over the last couple of years, I was, did the same thing. But now, in addition to the skills and the sort of physical tools and the spaces, I have access to an audience of people that I've built up over the years. So I was thinking, like, what is like the really efficient way to use that audience? And the obvious things are you make t-shirts and you sell them to them, or you create content behind a paywall, all these things that you see in the kind of media influencer landscape. But then I was thinking, it's like, well, where would access to my audience be most valuable? Like, I know how valuable it is to a company like Home Depot. It's the market rate for the audience size. If I make a project using a, a Home Depot dishwasher, and it gets seen by this many people, it has this dollar value to them. So I was thinking like, I know what that is and I'll continue to do that. It's a great business model and I really enjoy it. But like, who can I give disproportionate value to? And it was early stage startups that need this sort of product test because I can use my audience, not just to try to sell product or services, but also do focus group testing at this critical stage where the startup doesn't have a lot of money and is also trying to figure out what, what the audience- and what their consumers want. So I can do both market marketing for them and focus group product development at the same time. And from my standpoint, it's the same amount of work as just doing marketing. So I was like, well, let me start working with them. Now, startups are trying to grow. They're not trying to spend. And the, the business side of what I was already doing with brands like Home Depot, Ryobian, et cetera, is making plenty of revenue. So I want more growth, but not necessarily more cash. And so I started taking equity in companies like Hook. Um, so I'm like, I uh, have 10% of, uh, of Hook furniture and really sort of help them launch their Kickstarter, help them on the sort of uh, development when I can. But those guys are, are super talented on their own. And you know they're both Harvard educated architecture, former architecture students, which is how I met them and started a furniture company and are just, just crushing it. With Skip, it was more interest. So my architecture firm got, did really well because we were one of the first residential architecture firms to fully embrace Revit and BIM modeling. So oh, we I were competing zero with, energy design. Yeah. Zero energy yeah. design as well. Okay. Yeah. That, that's the architecture firm that I co-founded with Stephanie Horowitz. So 
it's a industry leader residential for sustainable design and construction in the sort of New England area. Um, and from day one, we were always using Revit. And that gave us a huge competitive advantage over the other firms. That was when we were in our 20s, you know, just out of college. And I'm sort of thinking about, well, now that I'm in my 40s, like what's, what's going to be this next kind of, what's the next version of building information modeling or 3D modeling that produces construction documents. And it's kind of probably be like database management of like stock details, 3D model pieces, and some sort of AI to filter in consumer in, uh, interests, analyze those and automatically generate into Revit three-dimensional layouts, renderings, and all these things, and really reduce the labor so that architecture becomes much more about ideas and creative direction and less and less about staring at a computer, rotating a model and filling out fire stairs. So uh, I got connected to the founders of Skip through a mutual friend. They are really interesting. I'm very skeptical in general when somebody says, this is AI powered or this involves machine learning. It's, yeah, it's, there's, there's a lot of kind of BS around thrown in with those terms, but when I met with them, what I was struck was they were kind of had a technologically progressive uh, answer at every step of the renovation process. So starting with as built. So if you're renovating a home from the 1970s, you probably don't have access to detailed blueprints of it. So you have to measure things and then draw them. Well, they do that with a Matterport scanner, which you bring the scanner in, it's on a tripod, and it rotates all the way around like a Cyclops cyborg. And it uses a laser and a camera to both get dimensionally accurate 3D model through a point cloud and also the ability to sort of photo map what it's shooting from the camera side directly over that 3D model. So you have a completely immersive 3D environment that's identical to your home. So that's great. Then on the other side, on the sort of machine learning and AI side, they built out a massive database of 3D models of every single manufacturer's like cabinets, appliances, and all those things. Now, well, I shouldn't say everyone, but with their major sort of partners that they work with, GE Cafe Appliances, et cetera. So now they have 3D model Lego building blocks of all the cabinets, refrigerators, stoves, tile. They work with fire clay, which is really great. Um, and they have a perfect scan of your home. From there, they take a customer intake of being like, show us designs that you like. So to build out like a little Pinterest mood board. And then they basically use that customer information to pull the models and place them into the pull the, from the database of Kinship components and place them into your 3D environment. And what's great is in architecture, whenever a client changes their mind or asks to see, oh, can I see a different layout? Uh, this one, the island's too big. Can you make the island smaller? Can you connect the island and make it a peninsula? I don't know about the stove there. Can you move it over there? Every time the customer does that, it creates like four to 20 hours of work. Yeah. If they want renderings for the new version, I could add another 10 hours on top of it. But once the computer or the software has all of those inputs, if the customer asks the question, can you move the thing over there? It's done. They've already mapped all the Lego pieces to your three-dimensional space. So seeing additional visualization, uh, visualization options, no one has to go find the file, open it back up, change the texture map. And that would just be for like, here's a good example. Uh, 
I'm working with a client uh, using Skip to redesign her kitchen. And, you know, she got the rendering. She's like, oh, can you change the tile? Now, for my architecture firm, that'd be like, oh. it's like, it's not that much labor, but you still got to, it's still going to take one of the junior employees half their day just to label the files, open it up, switch to texture map, hit the render button, wait two hours, get a cup of coffee, come back up. Oh, nope, I forgot to do this one thing. The shadows are wrong. Change that, uh, filter it in Photoshop, kind of like edit it a little bit so it looks good, load it into an email and send it back to the client. You just wasted half uh, a day of work to do what the client wants just because they can't imagine that. For the software, tell us, we can exhaust the client with every single thing they want to say. Oh, you want to see another one? Sure, let's do that. Just run the simulation again, right? So that's what I think is really exciting about Skip is get it gets rid of a lot of the annoying parts that I had to deal with when I was running like a custom residential architecture service. The machine learning part is great is how it like, uh, it analyzes what people are sort of like putting in in their preferences and then filtering out these different options. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I think it's going to work. Like we've done it a few times with a few clients and. Yeah. So is it, a, the, is, are you marketing it directly to like people who are on Pinterest and on social media, the people who aren't in the design field? Oh yeah. It's direct to consumer. Okay. So um, like the clients are, and they don't really charge much for design. They just like basically are, uh, they, they also package up all the, they find you a contractor to do the implementation. Their kitchens are not cheap, but they're also not expensive. Uh, they're kind of in this middle. So they're looking at like people that are interested in spending about 30 to $50,000 on a kitchen renovation, which is the upper middle of the market. Everything sort of below that is more sort of DIY and everything above that is more full service architecture. So they're kind of looking at like that high end middle. So if you buy like a $500,000 home, if you do a kitchen renovation, you're probably spending about fifty to seventy thousand. So, when you got into skip renovation, was it the same logic that you described earlier, where you looked at the demand for home renovations in this particular category and the supply of software or remodeling um, options available out there, and you found that perfect that that join right there? I don't know if it's perfect uh, from like a market fit, like. I've been involved with a lot of startups that have uh, not succeeded and I've been involved with other ones that do. It's like, it's really hard. So I think they're going to work. I think it's going to yeah. succeed. My sort of interest as an individual choosing to get involved with a startup and joining their sort of advisory board and taking equity in the company is being like, I can help a tech company like this. I don't want to found another tech company. I don't want to build a team of 20 to 30 people have the existential crisis on a daily basis of being like, are we going to make our series a funding round or do we have enough runway for doing that? I don't want those lifestyle challenges. It's really stressful. Um, but I do want the upside of like, can I have equity in a company that's currently valued at 15 to 20 million, but three years from now will be valued at a couple hundred million dollars. I don't see myself building a, a, a company greater than $20 million with myself as a founder. I, I don't think I'm that good at managing that many different departments and things. It's, it's a strength, but I think I could be a creative director or advisor for a much larger company. 
That being said, I don't want to get hired as an employee. I want to get in on the foundation level and own a small piece of equity and then help contribute my sort of creative direction to help them become that sort of $100 million company. And what's nice is like, I'm risking my time in these things and my time and my insight and my sort of audience credibility, which are all things I take very seriously, particularly the time and the audience credibility. But I think it's a good risk. And I can still do these things while I'm sort of doing my uh, fun DIY epoxy yeah. experiments. So what's your next big project? Are you interested in building a 3D printed house at all to debunk some of the, the myths out there? Yeah, it's, uh, I'm very interested in it. I'm interested in both acquiring a machine directly and seeing what I can do with it. Cause that would be sort of two ways to go with it, right? Like. Uh, I've had talks with Icon 3D printing, and I think you you visited them, and they're fascinating, and I think they're legit. Uh, I think a lot of the claims about we built a house in one day, no, you did the walls in one day, but again, doing the walls in one day, still super impressive. Something can be good, but not perfect, and we just need to say, oh, yeah, that's fine. Um, so... One, I could like work with a company like that and 3D print a house and create a series about it. I think what I'm more interested in is more saying like, this is the sort of audience that I've been interested in lately. I think there's a lot of uh, people in their early 20s that are considering like higher education versus like some sort of entrepreneurial pursuit. I think there's a lot, way too many people trying to create the next unicorn tech company and it's possible, but you have to be a really special person and not everyone's a really special person. And I include myself in those sort of categories, which is when I tried to do a tech company, I just didn't have the ability to manage all these kind of human and administrative things. Really good at like sort of building one creative thing at a time, but not so much uh, at sort of managing large teams. It's a, so when I think about those kind of young people that have tons of energy and really want to do something and they're like, I, I highly encourage people to get into being an electrician, a plumber, or a general contractor, particularly if they're like smart and have a decent education. Uh, you know, if you went to a good state school and your sort of opportunities are 60 to $70,000 a year working for some sort of corporate firm with a very long, slow progression to advancement or being like, do I want to compete with an industry that still struggles to use digital media like general contracting or plumbers and electricians and create this the modern version of an essential service that people will always need? I think there's a really clear path for a 20-year-old uh, become an electrician and by the time they're 30, making two to $300,000 a year, mm -hmm. um, owning their own business and doing those things. So with like general contracting and 3D printing, I've seen a lot of young people create woodworking and uh, kind of millworking shops using CNCs and like growing way faster than old established businesses that were like, didn't know how to use Illustrator or Vectrex or any of those software. So I think there's a possibility. I don't know if that possibility is the next two to three years or 10 years from now where a small scale general contractor invests $30,000 to get a 3D printing rig and goes around and does not houses, landscaping. Because if, right, if you were into a thing and being like, if you were to order really beautiful, you know, like in a lot of commercial buildings, they'll have like those things that ever since 9-11, 
they put up those big planters and concrete bollards or things like that to stop like a car from driving into the building. Those are super expensive and they're hard to move. You need to have all these cranes and stuff. But I think you could make really beautiful, like curvy, like 3D printed masonry planters, work with a landscape firm. And if you sort of have those and you can make them fit any size, you just bring the machine, print them on site. Right. That would be like, someone's going to start a 3D printing contracting business, just doing that, not trying to do the whole house. Yeah. Just trying to do that one thing that the machine's really good at. That's fascinating. So So I've been talking to different- That's more my interest for 3D printing. Yeah. Okay. So I was going to ask you about, so when you when you made the shipping container house, you made a lot of unsexy parts of building a container, building a house interesting. The the permitting process, the detailed drawings, the, the stuff that people who aren't in the construction architecture industry aren't aware of, you simplified it, you made it public information, and you you taught people in a very interesting way about that side of things. And is that... Is that um, you as an architect coming back to your roots because you've you've gone and you've done all these experiments with concrete and epoxy and um, are you still passionate about architecture and construction and you you want to teach people about that side of things? Yeah. <laughs> One, I don't think I make it interesting. I think it's interesting because not a lot of people talk about it, right? Like I don't think when I think of someone that makes something interesting, I think of like my friend, Mike from Modern Builds. He has a lot of charisma when he presents on camera. He's like, hey everybody, like super energetic. My on-camera delivery is very flat, particularly when I'm describing a project. It's, it's I, I, I think of it more like as a documentary than like a TV show. So I'm not sure, but I do think it is interesting based on the number of people that are choosing to watch it. So I think what's interesting about it is that it's relatively clear and paced fast enough that people can get through it. And it's rare that that information is offered. My, when I first got started on YouTube, I just did very straightforward DIY builds and they got a lot of views. Those same projects, if I made them now, would not get as many views. And so it's not that I was making them interesting then and not making them interesting now, it's that there's way more supply of that kind of content. So it's not really me making them interesting, it's me saying this is what's missing and what's missing is interesting to people if it's also useful. Uh, So I think that's like a really important thing for a creator to think about. It's not to think that they're the special sauce that's like adding to interest. In many cases, we're just finding a hole in the market and it's in, and we're filling that and that's what's driving the interest in watching those media content. So I don't think most construction shows talk about permitting, but yeah. that's the first thing people are struck with when they want to build a new home is how do I get permits? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's the way to kind of service the audience. I try to stay away from teaching as like a motivation uh, because I I think there's sort of a, whenever I talk to someone that's being like, I'm going to teach my audience, it sounds very high and mighty. And it sounds like I know more than you. And even if that wasn't the intent, I think the way we phrase things impacts the way we do things. Yeah. So I like to think of things as experiments, even though they're not really like scientific experiments, but a classical things but it sets the tone of how I present things. I think in a little more friendly, less pedantic kind of like high and mighty way. So if I say like, 
here's the way to make an epoxy side table. It's like, what the hell does this guy know? Yeah. And, I, and I'm not that good with epoxy. I'm just getting started. But if I say like, hey, I think epoxy is interesting. The audience seems to share that. Uh, I think it has some problems uh, in terms of toxicity and environmentally. The audience seems to get that too. But I wonder what would happen if you did this. And the audience seems to share that interest. So it's really not trying to teach. It's much more trying to share. Yeah. And that also is a lot less stressful for me. And I think you must have experienced this to some degree is it's much easier to share a question sometimes than it is an answer. But the answer, the smarter and more conscientious you are, the more you realize that there isn't answers, an answer. It's just, right. yeah. But and that's whenever, why experts are boring. <laughs> whenever like someone show, asks like, me, yeah. sorry, like whenever I talk to someone and they ask me, what's the solution? What's the solution to affordable housing? What's the solution to like homeless shelters? I mean, there isn't one answer. It's how do I answer your question? It's like, it could be this, it can be this, but there are ups and downs, like pros and cons to everything. Like it's hard to give a straight answer. And that I think that frustrates the interviewer that, that I'm not just giving like a one-line answer to things, but. Right. It's like, oh, well, I wrote the answer in this 10,000 page book. And if you read it in its entirety, you will have the same answers that I have. That's, that's the challenge, right? And so I love talking to experts, but they're often not great sort of as subject matter for particularly like TV interview shows because they want them to compress 30 years of expertise into 15 seconds of a soundbite. And that kind of compression, uh, there's a lot of resolution that's lost. Yeah, that's true. Well, well, we haven't even covered your trickle down approach to housing and all that stuff, but- We'll save that for the, I, the yeah, second interview. Yes. Well, thank but, you uh, so much, Ben, for- Well, well one thing, Absolutely. what are you working on next? Oh. What's, what's the big thing? Sorry, you've been talking about 3D printing, in construction, really excited for that. You've been breaking down different, more commonplace materials, uh, like for for countertops and stuff like that. What's what's on the horizon? What are some of the things you're interested in? I feel like over the last two years, I've accumulated a lot of information about the construction industry, about materials and building signs, and I really want to put all that knowledge to use. I just don't. I want. I don't want to be just a YouTuber. So I'm trying to find a project out there that can that can help me like wrap my head around all the stuff and like help someone else or help the community at 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 large. And there was a project I, I was hoping would would actually come to fruition and it would be a 3D printing project over here, but that fell through. Um, so um, I'm trying to find something else out there that that I can be a part of. Uh, yeah. Sometimes things like with the shipping container house, I pitched at the Home Depot for three years before they said yes. <laughs> so sometimes things take a long time to, to, to happen. But look, that pro I wouldn't say that project fell through. It fell off. It Come fell on. off your calendar and your schedule. But as long as you keep investing in the information and the knowledge, you will be better suited to do that project six months from now than you are today. So if it doesn't fall off, uh, it, the likelihood of it succeeding increases over time, not decreases. So That's every your time- That's positive thinking, huh? <laughs> it's, it's, I try to think of it as objective, right? Like I was more well-suited to do the house 
after three yeah. years of presenting it than I was in the first year of presenting it. That's an interesting way of thinking. Yeah, it was a little disappointing because like I said, I want, I want, I don't want to be just on YouTube making these videos. They're great. I'm learning something new every week, things that I wouldn't have learned at an architecture firm. And I'm getting to talk to people all around the world and learn something new from them. But I want to put all that information and knowledge to use. So, okay, so okay. I would phrase it this way. Uh, what's great about the videos you're making is they're low capital risk. You're not risking a lot of money to make each one of these videos. So the risk is low, but the upside is only so high because you're not really owning anything. And once it's done, it's like, okay, got to do another one, right? Yes. So it's low risk from a capital standpoint. There is some risk of your time relative to the performance of the video. And it seems what you would like is to have a bigger project that's higher risk that you're putting more into it that can also elevate everything around it. Because you pull off a 3D printing architectural or real estate development project, one, you can improve the asset using this new technology. There's novelty there. Plus, you're going to get great media content out of it. So I think that's the way I would look at it. Is your, and it's the same thing I was trying to do with the hotel and startups. Is I was actually trying to take more financial risk for greater growth to get past this current plateau. Yeah, it's just like you said, like you, you post a video and then for a few seconds, you're, you have that, that, that buzz that buzz and the dopamine release. And then you're like, oh, crap, now I have to work on the next one. Yeah. So yeah, it gets exhausting. Yeah, I really like having projects at different time lengths. It's really fun having a project that's going to take a couple of years to complete, a project that's going to take three months to complete, and a project that's going to take two hours to complete so that you're weak, you have different levels of victories a step forward in a really long project, a completion of a really small project, and a medium push towards a medium project. It feels less tedious than just being in a factory, small like, oh, I'm gonna make a new chair. Okay. Oh, now I make the next chair, now I make the next chair. And only working on big architectural projects that take a really long time, the satisfaction of finishing is so far away. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And worked on worked for two years on a on a hospital in Pennsylvania, designing their medical equipment layout. And when I actually visited, I was like, oh, okay, that it just that satisfaction wasn't it. It just didn't pay off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, Excellent. thank you so much. You've given me a lot to think about, and it's always fun to talk to you, Ben. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, and thank you for differentiating me in your scam uh, container video. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Bye. See you. Bye.